This truth about how wretched we are, how wicked we are, it's something that you need whether you're a lost man, woman, whether you're just uh, a religious person and not aware of your lost condition, or whether you're a believer just trying to grow in Christ. Because as we grow in Christ, you get to see more and more of your sin. You get to depend more and more on Christ, and you grow in your repentance and faith. Y'all with me? Okay. All right. So what we're going to see in this text, we're going to start in in verse 14. Jesus is going to show us obstacles of trusting. It's one thing to say, it's one thing to say, I know that I'm a wicked person. It's another thing when my wickedness is laid out on the table and revealed. It's offensive. It hurts. It's painful. It's convicting. I'll give you a little, there's a famous story about a man named Charles Wesley. He was a hymn writer, a big famous hymn writer. He was the brother of John Wesley, which was the preacher. And of course, Charles Wesley was a preacher as well, but he's more famous for writing hymns and that kind of thing. After a service uh, in a particular congregation, Charles Wesley had had done the deal and this lady walked up to him and she said, Brother Wesley, um, I am such a horrible sinner. Would you please pray for me? And uh, Charles Wesley said, this is a real famous story. It's uh, it's noted in a lot of places. He said, yes, ma'am, I will pray for you because I do know that you are a definitely terrible sinner. And she said, well, who's been talking to you? I'm just as good as everybody else around here. You know, it was one thing for her to come and say, you know, oh, I'm a sinner. Please pray for me. But when he thought when she thought he had received some details about her sin, it automatically it was offensive. It was like, whoa, what have you done? Hurt? I'm not that bad now. I mean, I know I said I'm a sinner, but but I'm not so bad. I'm not as bad as as some of the people in here. It's an it's an offense. It's a it's something inside of us wants to believe that we're good people and that everything's going to be okay. And if we just live right and do right, God's going to accept us. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of the kingdom of God. That's not the message of Christ. The message of Christ is offensive. You and I are wicked. We're rotten to the core. Your heart is desperately wicked. You don't even realize how wicked it is. That's what Jeremiah 69 means. Who can know it? Who can understand? You don't even know how wicked your heart is. And so there are obstacles that get in our way of trust in Christ. There are obstacles that get in the way of people out there that are lost, the raging atheist for, you know, he doesn't want to trust in Christ and these obstacles are in his way. But I don't want you to get comfortable and start thinking, you know, well, we're going to talk about lost people that get that reject the gospel there. These same obstacles get in the way of religious folks. Uh, from trusting in Christ, from coming to know Christ. So we're going to look at these obstacles real quick and we'll try not to, we'll try not to be long. Let me set the scene first. We, uh, we've just come in Luke chapter four. We've just come from the wilderness. Jesus has defeated. He has, he has went to the fight. He's went to the battle and he has defeated Satan. He's defeated all the temptations that Satan has thrown at him. He has won the fight that nobody else could win. He's won the fight that Adam lost. He won the fight that Israel lost in the wilderness. He won the fight for us. And he's coming out of that. It says that Satan, uh, at the very end of the text we read, I realized that I didn't even read the last verse that we were uh, talking about last week. Verse 13 says, and when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. The devil didn't leave him for good. He just left him for a season. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee. 
And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So what you see here is Jesus is now beginning his ministry, his, his teaching, his preaching. He's going around to the cities of Galilee. He's going around to the places where uh, the, the Jews met in synagogue and he is teaching. They, they would allow uh, traveling teachers that came through the synagogues to, to teach in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus' fame is growing. He's getting, he's getting a name for himself. I mean, you can imagine what's going on. He's preaching in the power of the Spirit. It says the power of the Spirit is upon him. He's teaching as one who has authority. Everywhere he goes, when he speaks, people are marveling at what he says because he is teaching as one, not just said, Rabbi so-and-so said this or that, but he's saying, I say unto you, and he's teaching with authority, and he's getting, he's getting kind of famous. He's getting kind of famous. People are knowing him around Galilee for his teaching and his ministry, and to be honest, that's not the offensive part. Today, you can run out and you can say all kind of thing about things about Jesus being a great teacher, a great moral guide to us. He's kind of like Gandhi. You know, he, he, he just teaches us how we, we should live and he's a good example for us. You could say all those things and nobody's going to get offended. Nobody cares. The world will gladly accept you if your Jesus is nothing but a good teacher. And so all these people uh, in Galilee were, were hearing him. His fame was growing. He was, his ministry was beginning and he was starting to see, uh, he says he was glorified by all. People were praising him because of his ministry. Now, it, it seems like everything's going wonderful. Everything's doing great. You know, it looks like, hey, this Jesus guy's the new rabbi on the scene. He's the new teacher. He's the new guy. I mean, God has sent this guy. And, you know, they probably knew the testimony of John the Baptist who said, hey, this is the Lamb of God right here. There were lots of people around the Jordan River when he was baptized. I'm sure a lot of them heard the voice that said, this is is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so he was, he was getting kind of famous as a teacher. So he comes home. He comes home to Nazareth. In verse 16, it says, he's, he's glorified by all. He's getting famous. He comes to Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. He comes home. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's use our imagination just a little bit. This is where Jesus grew up. We know that he was, we talked about in Luke where it says he was a 12-year-old boy and they took him to the temple and, you know, he was learning and growing in strength and favor with God and men. He was a regular 12-year-old boy, albeit sinless. He was the son of God from his birth until, uh, until today, to, uh, to be honest. But he was sinless, but he was a real man. He was really God, 100% and really man. And so these people in Nazareth had watched Jesus grow up. They'd watched him. They knew his family. They knew, I mean, Nazareth is not that big of a city, so they probably knew where he lived. They probably knew his, you know, they had seen him running and playing with all the other kids. You know, I just can't help but think, you know, there's an older lady there that would say, you know, because Jesus was sinless. You you can imagine some lady going, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I remember him. He was so polite. He's such a good boy. Oh, I wish my kids were like him. You know, I could just, I picture that in my mind. I said, it's okay to smile. Go ahead. You smile. That was funny. Anyway, he's come home. They knew him. 
They had seen him running around in the streets. They had seen him playing games. They knew his family. They knew all about him. And they, to, to be honest, he, he walks into the synagogue and this is not a new thing for him. As a Jewish boy, 13 years old, he would become a member of this synagogue. That was where he lived. So he, it, it, would be, it would have been like if I went off somewhere, uh, you know, for... I don't know, 15 years or something, and I come back to Christ Church, it wouldn't be a really new thing. There'd be people here I probably wouldn't know. There'd be a lot of people that I did. People would say, hey, I remember him. I would come in and, you know, I remember I used to sit right over there. And, I, you know, it would be familiar. Everything was familiar. Jesus had gone and he had become a famous teacher and this teacher had come home. Uh, it's almost like hometown boy makes good. You know that, you know that feeling we get when, uh, you know, if somebody from a small town goes off and, and becomes, I don't know, a professional athlete or a politician or a, an actor or, you know, somebody famous or something. It, it's, it's in us all that, you know, you know, I, I grew up with him. Yeah, that's right. You know, when somebody meant, yeah, I remember them in high school. They, they really ain't all that. You know, they wasn't all that in high school. It was easy for them. It was easy for them to say, you know what? We know Jesus is, is coming back home. He has done so good. He's so famous. People are out there listening to him. He has become this, this teacher of all teachers. And he's come home to Nazareth. And he comes to the synagogue. And you can just imagine people say, Jesus is in town. Do you hear that? I, re- I heard that. I've heard he's been doing all kind of things. I've heard he's been teaching and doing miracles and all kind of things like that. I'm, you know, it's almost the Sabbath. Let's Let's go hear him. Let's go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and let's hear him. Let's check him out. Let's go see what, what all the, what all the stuff is. You know, we could reminisce about when I used to, you know, babysit his brother, you know, whatever they, they knew him. They knew all about him. And so he goes into the synagogue and like I said, rabbis usually traveling rabbis would teach in the synagogues. And so he goes in there to read. He's going to stand up and read, deliver a message. Verse 17, it says, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he reads out into the te- out into the crowd of people that he knew so well, or more importantly, that knew him so well. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Isaiah 61, by the way. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This text is from Isaiah 61. There's a, the, the last part from Isaiah 58, but they would have all known. This text, this would have been that this would have been something that was read a lot because this was the hope of Israel. This was the, the, the context of Isaiah in this passage from, from 40, chapter 40, Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66 is about this Messiah, this suffering servant who's going to come and he's going to bring with him a new era. He's going to bring with him peace and deliverance and salvation. And, you know, it's just everything's going to be wonderful. There's not going to be any more slaves. There's not going to be any more uh, oppression. There's not going to be any more pain and hurt. God is going to come with his Messiah and he's going to make everything right. There's going to be a new age. And in this age, everything, everything is going to be wonderful. Uh, they would have, they would have told their children about this. You know, uh, when they were putting them to bed, you can imagine how you just, you need to know that God has promised us. We're Israel. We're the people of God. God's promised us that 
that one day he's going to send a deliverer and, and there's going to be peace and there's going to be prosperity and there's not going to be any more uh, suffering and slavery. We're not going to have to deal with all this. They would have told their kids this. This was the hope of Israel. This was the hope of the people. They would have known this text. It would have been like me standing up here and preaching to you about heaven. If I read a text out about what heaven's going to be like, you would probably say the same thing they were saying here. Oh, won't that be wonderful? Won't I just can't wait for that day when we finally get to see him. I can't wait for that day when we get to walk on the streets of gold. We get to, there's no more pain and no more suffering and we get to be with all our, we would say, boy, won't it be wonderful when that happens? They were saying the same thing when he read this text. People in the crowd were going, you know, oh, that's my favorite text. I wonder what he's going to say. Oh, it'll, it'll just be so wonderful when God finally sends his Messiah, when he finally brings in the age of peace, when he finally does what he has promised all through the Old Testament to do. And incidentally, this is uh, the last verse, the acceptable year of the Lord is talking about the Jubilee year where all the slaves are freed and all the debts are canceled and everybody goes back to their land. And there was coming a time when he promised there would be an era of jubilee. It would be a, an era where all the slaves would be free and all the people would be prosperous and the, all the promises of the Old Testament would come to fulfillment and the Messiah was going to bring all this to pass. And all of them were waiting in anticipation thinking, what's he going to say? I can't wait for that time when God finally sends deliverance, when he finally comes to free us, when he finally comes and fulfills all the things that he promised us. They were probably sitting in anticipation. In fact, another word, verse 20, it says, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. You can almost feel the way Luke writes this. You can almost feel the suspense is building. What's he going to say? Oh, I can't wait. He's going to tell us all about what it's going to be like. He's going to tell us all about what's going to happen, what it's going to be like when God comes and finally delivers us. And Jesus gives them this message in 21. He says, and he began to say unto them this day, which means today, right now, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, you can almost feel the air leave the room when he says it. Uh, wait, what? T- today? I mean, right now? You, you can imagine them looking around at each other. Uh, today, today it's, they probably heard this preached many times, heard it read many times, and it was always, oh, won't it be wonderful that day? Won't it be great when God finally does what he promised? Won't it be great when the new era of peace and salvation comes? Won't it be great when the Messiah comes and here's Jesus? He didn't say, won't it be great? He didn't say, won't it be wonderful when it happens? He says, today you get to witness that this is fulfilled. And they knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I am the one who brings the salvation of God. I'm the one who has been anointed of God to preach the good news of this gospel, to preach the good news to the poor. I'm the one that's to heal the brokenhearted. I'm here. I'm the one that's going to release the captives. I'm the one that's going to set all the slaves free. I'm here. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. I mean, he was saying I am here today to pronounce to you 
that I am the fulfillment of all the promises of God that he has made to you. I'm the fulfillment of all the peace that he's promised you, the salvation he's promised you. I am the fulfillment of all the deliverance that he's promised you. I am bringing in this new era of salvation and deliverance of God. You can imagine what they thought. They were like, but you're Joseph's boy. He's what in, in verse 22, it says, and all bore witness, all bore him witness. And they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They, they wondered at his words of grace. He's preaching all this freedom, uh, su- deliverance, salvation, healing, all these things. And they said, this is how they bore him witness. They said, ain't this Joseph's boy. Okay, so today this is fulfilled in our hearing. You're, you're claiming that you are the Messiah. You're the revelation of God. You're the promise fulfillment. You're the one. Boy, I remember you when you was running around in diapers. I remember you when you, you know, when y'all was playing baseball and, and Joe and Ray Ray knocked that through my window, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, I remember you when you were growing up. I've known you since you was this high. I've known your daddy. I knew your daddy's daddy's daddy. Your whole family has been in this town forever. Are you, you crazy? You're the Messiah. You're the one that's bringing this deal. This is Joseph's boy. Jesus immediately sees what's going on. He, he knows their hearts. He knows that they are going to reject him. They, they already really have rejected him. And what he's going to do is, here's where I want to get to. What he's going to do is he's going to start speaking and he's going to show them the obstacles that are in their way. He's going to show them the, these three obstacles that, that are getting in their way of trusting in him. And these are the same three obstacles that get in our way. They're the same three obstacles that get in the way of people uh, who are lost and undone, who refuse to come to Christ. They're the same three obstacles that get in the way of religious people who are fine to just go about doing religion and doing better. No, uh, not understanding that you and I, you and I can't do better. We're wicked to the core. We need a savior. And they're obstacles that keep us from trusting in this Christ. And they're the same three obstacles. Of course, there are others, but the ones he says here are the same obstacles that get in the way of actual believers growing in Christ. Because to grow in Christ, you have to understand more of your sinfulness, more of your need, so you'll depend more on Christ. Growing in Christ doesn't mean just learning more stuff. It doesn't mean just increasing your knowledge about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. It's increasing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. It's not just knowing facts about Jesus, it's knowing Jesus. When you come to be saved, you don't just learn a a list of things about who Jesus is and be able to repeat them to me when I ask you the proper question. You have to come to know this Jesus. You have to come in relationship with this person. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God. And the same holds true for growing in Christ. You don't learn a bunch of facts and grow in the faith. You come to know Him more. Know Him more. Not know about Him more, but know Him more. Of course you're going to know about him more, but to grow in Christ, you are knowing him more. You are walking closer with him. It is a relationship with someone, not just learning about something that happened. And so these obstacles, Jesus is going to tell them why he's going to show them their problem. He's going to tell them, you know, I know y'all don't believe. 
I know you don't believe. And, and this is why. The first thing he says, as he, he realizes their hearts, he realizes that, that they're not going to accept him. They're going to reject him. They already have rejected him. The first thing, the first obstacle of faith is that we say, people say, God, you owe me. You owe me a sign. You owe me something more. If you want me to believe in you, then you owe me some stuff. You're going to have to you're going to have to shell out if you want my faith. You're going to have to shell out for me if you want me to get in line with you. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, and he said to them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, all those miracles do also here in thy country. What basically they're saying, hey, (laughs) we don't really believe that you're, I mean, come on, we know you. If you want us to believe, if you want us to trust in you, you're going to have to show me something. You're going to have to show me, do a trick. He was like, you know, just like Herod, when God, when Jesus was brought before Herod, come on, do a trick for me, do a miracle for me. Let me see it, you know, and then I'll believe you. This is the same thing that the Jews did to Christ over and over again. Later on in this same book, uh, they said, you know, give us a sign. He said, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of Jonah, which is he went three days in the grave and then rose again. Uh, again, in, in, in John, he says, uh, they, they seek for a sign. They want, show me. If you're, the, if you're the one, if you want me to trust in you, give me something to, so I know that it's true. And he said, okay, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. The resurrection is what he has given us to understand that we must put our faith in him. He doesn't owe us anything else. He doesn't owe us any signs, any wonders, anything that he has given us. It is by his grace and he gives abundantly. So I'm not saying there are none. I'm just saying he don't owe them. He don't owe them. These people are saying, you know, okay, we know you. To be honest, it's not my fault that I don't trust in you. It's your fault. You you haven't given me enough evidence. You haven't given me enough signs. You haven't given me any reason to believe in you. So it's not my fault I don't trust you. It's not my fault I'm not going to repent of my sin and cast myself on your mercy, your grace, trust that you're the Messiah. Really, it's your fault. If you would just do a little more, if you would do something for me first, I'll be happy to trust in you. I'll be happy to believe in you. And we know that that is, that mindset, that thinking is opposite of what faith is. That's the, uh, we just saw coming off the temptations of Christ. That's what the temptation was. Throw yourself off the temple. I mean, if you, if you're God's son, oh, he's going to protect you. Don't worry about it. Why don't you throw yourself off the temple and just see if God's word's true? What did Jesus say? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This is the opposite of faith. If Jesus pulled up in a golden carriage outside, and glory was shining off of him, or if he appeared on this stage as we were, as we were meeting, you know, and, and it was just blind and light, or I mean, I don't even know how it would be, but like the Mount of Transfiguration or something, you wouldn't need faith. You'd have sight. You could see him. It wouldn't be a matter of relationship with Christ in trust, in faith, throwing yourself upon his mercy and grace. You and I aren't owed anything. And you see this out there. You got a million people or millions of people out there that refuse to trust in Christ. Why? Because they say he hadn't given me any reason to trust him. Well, you breathe in his air. 
Well, you living in his world. Well, he's providing your meals. He's providing your heartbeat. You know, you've got all kind of religious people that, that want to make deals with God. You know, they'll say, God, I promise I will give my life to you if you will fix this situation or if you will do this thing for me or if you will handle this deal. Usually it happens when we get in trouble. When we get in trouble, uh, something tragic is going on and we, we say, God, I, and I've done it before and you've done it before too. So let's not act like we, we above it. We, we say, we say, God, please fix this for me and I will do whatever. Whether it's, I'll start reading my Bible faithfully. I, I'll make sure I'm in church all the time. I'll, I, something real. I will surrender my life to you. I will give anything that you ask. I will give, you know, whatever it is. When the reality is, we don't have any capital to deal with. We don't have anything to offer him. All the things that I've ever offered him, and I've done it just like you have, are things that I owe him already. And so the reality, and God is so good, when I do that, when you do that, when we try to make deals with God, I'm telling you, almost in every case, I can tell you, he's really come through. And man, it, it, I need to pay my vows to God when I vow something to him. So I'm not saying that at all, but I need to also understand that he has answered my prayer when he does. He has given by his grace, not because he needed something from me. The reality is, I... I owe him everything I'm trying to bargain for anyway. You know, I owe him my service. I owe him my life. I owe him my, my faithfulness and my gratitude. I owe him my, my everything. It'd be like, I've told you all this before. It'd be like, you know, uh, we're, I was talking to Lyle about this Wednesday. Uh, it would, it would be like Lyle works for his, works for his granddaddy. It'd be like, uh, his, his granddaddy and, and Lyle are getting their, you know, stuff together for the summer for him to start working. And, uh, and, you know, granddaddy says, Lyle, I'm gonna pay you $200 a week and you're gonna come and do all this deal. Lyle says, okay, I'll be there. And on the way out the door, he says, you know, I got an idea. If you'll pay me $250 a week, I'll be on time every day. <laughs> what do you think granddaddy's going to say? He's going to say, let me take my belt off, boy. <laughs> no, you already owe me to be on time every day. That's not a bargain. That's not something that you, you, you're not offering me anything. Granddaddy don't owe you another $50 just to be on time. You already owe him to be on time. And so over and over again, we see this attitude that's an obstacle of faith. It's an obstacle of coming to know Christ. It's an obstacle of us growing in Christ. God, you've got to do this for me. You've got to do something for me if you want my allegiance. You've got to do something for me if you want my faith, if you want my service, if you want my life. You've got to, you've got to pay out. You've got to show me something. That's an obstacle of faith that we see in lost people and religious people. And we see it in our own lives, don't you? Don't you see it in your own heart? God, why have you done this to me? How could you do such a thing? I've been faithful. How could you do this to me? You see it in your own life. I know I see it in mine. I might be the only one. You owe me. That's one of the obstacles of faith. Jesus said, look, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, physician, heal yourself. He's saying, come, you need to bring some of this stuff around here, your own place, your own hometown. Show us all the things that we've been hearing about in Capernaum. You know, let, let's see something. If you're the Messiah, you want my trust. You want my faith. You want my allegiance. You want my life, my service. You got to show me something. 
You can't just tell me that's what I need to do and then go on like, like you somebody. You got to show me. You got you to give a little if you want to get a little. Understand, God doesn't owe you anything. He has proven himself because you're sitting here and you're breathing. He's proven your, himself because he's given you your daily bread. He's given you your heartbeat. He's given you the air that you breathe. You're walking around in his world. You're walking around in his universe. He has done exceedingly above already in blessing all people. He has done exceedingly above anything that we, we could possibly ask for. He has been good to us. And so he don't owe us anything else. If anything, we owe him. But that's an obstacle. The second one is one that is so prevalent. Verse 24, he says, and he said, verily, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Ain't this Joseph's boy? Aren't you Joseph's boy? I know you. That's the that's the obstacle. I already know all that. You ain't telling me nothing. I don't know. That's not good grammar, but. You aren't telling me anything that I don't know, that I don't already know. I already know that. I got it. I got it. This was the hometown boy. This was, this was Joseph's boy. I know your family. I watched you grow up, you know. Uh, you, the Messiah? Really? I remember when you were running around, you know, the streets of Nazareth. You, now you're claiming to be the Messiah. They were so close to him. They already knew about him. And so they were so close they're so familiar with Jesus of Nazareth that they missed Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world. And so today you see the same idea. You see the same thing going on. I already know all that. You'll hear people say, you know, I, I gave that a try way back when, you know, I've already done all those kind of things. I, I, I know more Bible than you do. I know all the stories. I know about how he feeded the feet. Feeded? Is that a word? He fed the 5,000. Uh, I know about how he walked on the water. And, you know, I can tell you all those stories. You know, I, I, I know all those things. That is an obstacle sometimes for us to come to actually trust Christ. Knowing about Christ is not trusting in Christ. Knowing all the stories, knowing all the Bible verses, especially around this area of the country, the Bible Belt, you know, you, you can't help but grow up around Christianity, around Jesus stuff. They're praying at the baseball games before. They're praying in school assemblies still. You know, mom and dad are, are at least have the green Jesus sign out in your yard. I mean, come on, you're not a pagan, are you? I mean, you can grow up around this stuff and you can just assume, hey, that was my life. I've been around it. I know all about it. I've got it. And never trust in the Savior for your salvation and die and spend eternity separated from God. So close to Jesus that you missed it. So close to him that, you know, I can say it's almost like getting inoculated. I'm spitting everywhere. I'm going to clean this off before I get done. It's almost like getting inoculated when you get a, a vaccine. You know what they're putting in you? They're putting in you little dead virus cells. They're putting what they're vaccinating you from into you. And you get a little bit at a time, you get a little bit, and you're building up an immunity against that disease. So you won't get the disease because you've been given the vaccination. It's almost like that. You get, you get Jesus a little here and a little there, and you grow up there. And by the time it comes where your sin is manifest and you need to trust in the Savior, you're thinking, I've already done that. I've already had that. I remember when I prayed the prayer when I was six. You know, we've met someone that prayed the prayer, they said, when they were three. I mean, I can't remember nothing when I was three. 
So I, I remember when I walked the aisle. I remember when I got baptized. I remember vacation Bible school. I remember all those kind of things. And when it comes time, when God convicts you, when the Holy Spirit comes through the preaching of his word and someone says, you must trust Jesus, they say, I already got that done. That's not the answer to my problem because I need something more. They were so familiar with the hometown boy, Jesus. They knew all of They probably knew more about Jesus of Nazareth than you and I do. They knew all kind of things. They had seen him. They had grown up with him. And because they were so close, they missed it. They rejected it. When it came time to actually understand, hey, you're lost and you need a savior. Oh, not me. I know about Jesus. I know about all the things that he did. I know that he went to the cross. I know that he rose from the grave. So does Satan. He knows all those things. And so they were so close. He, I already did that. I got to hurry. The last thing that we're going to look at is what Jesus says in verse 25 through 27. He says, first, he's told them the one obstacle is God owes me something. God owes me. If he wants my faith allegiance, he, he owes me a little something. The second obstacle is you got so close, you're so close to knowing uh, all about Christ that you won't come to faith in Christ. And the third one is, well, he's not talking about me. Amen. Preach it, brother. Get them folks. He's not talking about me. In verse 25, he says, and he said, verily I say unto you, or no, that was 24. He says, but I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, which is Elijah. When the heaven was shut up, there was no rain. Three years and six months, when a great famine was throughout all the land. It says, but none of them was Elijah sent, save to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, which is Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. What he does is he shows them two stories. And you know the stories, right? Let me just give you a quick background. The woman that he's talking about with Elijah was the woman that was starving to death. And she didn't have, all she had was enough meal and oil to make one last cake for her and her kid to die. And Elijah, God sent Elijah to her after Elijah's deal with the prophets of Baal. And remember, Elijah's, woe is me, I'm the last prophet. And God said, no, I've got 7,000 more. That have it. it was just a horrible time in Israel, horrible, horrible time of idolatry. You know, Jezebel and Ahab, you know, all that was going on at this time. And God sent Elijah to this widow woman. And Elijah told her, he says, you know, just make me the cake. Make me the cake. And, and God's going to take care of you. You know the story. She did. She believed. She obeyed. And the oil and the meal didn't run out for the whole time of the famine. And so the second one, of course, is Naaman. You know Naaman went down to... Okay, anyway. Uh, he, he came to Elisha. Elisha. Man, I'm spitting everywhere. He came to Elijah uh, because he had heard there was a prophet of God in Israel. And he had leprosy. And this is the guy that could cleanse you. Remember, Elisha didn't even go to the door. He sent a servant out just to tell him, hey, you want to be cleansed? Go dunk yourself in the Jordan seven times. And at, at first, Naaman says, forget that. I'm not doing it. I'm not lowering myself. And the servant talked him into it. He believed. He obeyed. He went to the Jordan, dipped himself seven times and was cleansed. Now, look at what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, they're thinking, hey, you, you don't have anything to offer us. We're God's people. I mean, 
We're here in the synagogue. We're listening to the word of God. We've been doing this a long time before you got here, Jesus. I mean, we're the bearers of the promise of God. He's not talking to us. He's not talking. You're not talking to me. The warnings that you're talking about, the, 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 the commands that you're saying, I got it. You're talking to all them people out there. Jesus tells them, look, you need to understand. Even back in the Old Testament, even back during the time of the prophets, when Elijah and Elisha came, they passed over all of unbelieving Israel. It didn't matter that they were the people of God. It said, look, in Elijah's day, there was a whole lot of widows in Israel. There was a famine going. People were dying. Jezebel and all that was going on. It was just, it was an awful time. It says, Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to this woman, this widow woman, a Gentile widow woman from Sidon, which, by the way, was the hometown of Jezebel. Why? Why was she helped? Why was she offered this grace of God and not these others? Because she trusted. She believed. She made, she obeyed. She made the cake for Elijah. And it says that there was lots and lots of lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha. Lots of them. They were everywhere. But the one that was healed was this Syrian. He was the enemy general of the army. The Gentile. Why? Because he trusted and he obeyed. Albeit he had to be talked into it, he still trusted and obeyed. Jesus is telling them, look. Don't say, he's he's saying the same thing John has previously previously said in Luke. He's saying, don't say because we have Abraham as our father that we don't need to. God can raise up the rocks as sons of Abraham. The axe is already at the tree. And every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown to the fire. He's telling them, look, don't say, well, it's not talking about me. We have a tendency, us church folks, to kind of ignore the warnings of Scripture. Praise God. Amen. That's right. Them heathens are going to get it. Them sinners are going to get it. But it ain't talking about me. You know, it's not talking about us. You know, we're good. It's all good. We're we're A-OK here. You know, you need to get them out there. When the reality is he's saying, no, 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 no. Everybody, everybody from South America all the way to Southeast Asia, you must trust in the Savior. It's, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much you know, doesn't matter what your church membership is or what your status in the world or the community is. You must trust in Christ and you must continually trust in Christ. Today, you're going to get up and you're going to grow in your faith. You don't put it behind you and say, well, I got that done, so I'm, not, I'm, co- I'm good. I'm, I'm not worried about it anymore. It's not a, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of, um, you know, I, I've done bad, so I need to get saved again. There's no such thing as that. It's a matter of depending on Jesus more today than we did yesterday. It's a matter of understanding that I'm a sinner. You remember when I started, I said, you're not a good person. That's the offensive message. That's what they were thinking. We got it. We're God's people. He was saying, no, no, no. Those who trust are God's people. Look, look back. Elijah didn't go and heal uh, Israel, an Israel leper. He healed the one. God healed through him the one who came in trust and faith. He says, you're gonna, don't think that you got it going on just because of who you are. And of course, one of two things is going to happen. Either 
when you give this message, you're either going to be broken and repentant and come to faith in Christ, come to uh, repentance, or you're going to get really, really mad. And that's what happens so often. That's what happens here in verse 28. We'll end. It says, and they all, they knew exactly what he was saying. They all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill wherein their city was built, that they may cast him down headlong. They tried to kill him. I remember Jesus. I remember, you know, they, hometown boy, when he come home preaching the gospel of God, the hometown folks tried to throw him off the cliff. It says, but he passed through the midst of them and went his way. It wasn't time for him to die. It wasn't time for him to suffer. And so what you need to see here, what you need to see is don't ignore the symptoms. Every day, I'm in the hospital every day. And every day, meet people that have ignored the symptoms of their problem and now it's too late. You have the symptoms. If you have the spiritual symptoms, something's not right. I'm not growing. I've lost, uh, I've grown cold in my, in my faith. I've grown cold in my service. I've, I've backed off. I've taken my hands off the plow. Whatever it may be, don't ignore the symptoms because you and I need to understand that we cannot trust in, we cannot trust in who we are. We cannot trust in how much we know. We can't, we can't trust in, I have done enough that God owes me. And so it's all going to be good. We must trust in the Savior. We must realize that we are owed nothing, but we owe Him everything and trust in Him. If we ignore the symptoms of the problem, the problem just gets worse. And if the Father is not disciplining you, if these symptoms persist, then you need to ask some hard questions about whether you've trusted in the Son. You need to ask some hard questions about whether you've been born again. You and I have to trust in the Savior because you're not good. You're not even remotely good, and neither am I. You're not good at all. You're wicked. Even today, even believer, you're still not good. The only goodness you have is what Christ has given you. The only righteousness you have is what Christ has given you. So you need to trust in the Savior. And tomorrow when you wake up, you need to repent of your sin and trust in the Savior. And the next day when you wake up, you need to repent of your sin and trust in the Savior. And you need to spend your life growing in your repentance and your faith in Christ. That's what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. Has one of these obstacles been in your way? Are you so close to the church thing, so close to the religious thing, so close to the Christianity thing that you've missed it? One of those people who says, Lord, Lord, it can't be me. It can't be me. Today, he said, if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus for your salvation, he said he'd save you. He said he would always be with you. He'd never leave you or forsake you. He said that he would give you peace. And that's what he offers today. Come to him. And then when you wake up tomorrow, come to him again. And you spend your life coming to him in repentance and faith at the foot of the cross, knowing that we have everything that we will ever need in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you've done.